And welcome back to episode 217 of the Cabin Podcast. We are entering the twilight zone today. Ooh, yes. So we've chatted about the night sky before, and we're to find the dark zones, which is pretty cool for that episode. Uh, it's episode 179. You can check it out called Top Places to Stargaze in Wisconsin. Today, we'll be highlighting where to spot the northern lights throughout the state of Wisconsin. And we have astrophysicist Major Sam Warfel and also northern lights photographer joining us. He uh, currently attends the University of Wisconsin, Madison, and we're so excited to have him. That's right. And we are gearing up to step out of the cabin and follow Sam's journey into space. I'm Annalise Beckman. I'm Eric Paulson. I'm Jake Rome. And this is The Cabin Podcast. Stay tuned. That does sound kind of spacey when you think about it. I'd say so. Right? Yeah. Cabin is brought to you by the Wisconsin Counties Association. And this week we're featuring Wapaka County, which was created back in 1851 and has one of Wisconsin's more popular Chano Lakes areas. Strong history with Native Americans and the mounds that they built. The ancient indigenous peoples there constructed earthworks that expressed religious and political concepts like in many areas across the Midwest. Uh, but an early European explorer counted 72 such earthen mounds in what is now Wapaka County, many of them in the form of effigy mounds, shaped like humans and turtles, catfish and others, they said. <laughs> Isn't that wild? 72, yeah. one for each county. That's, uh, that's pretty cool, right? One mound shaped like a catfish is still visible in a private yard if you're on Highway QQ, just east of Taylor Lake. Wapaka is the county seat of Wapaka County. Who'd have thunk? It's a very popular <laughs> vacation destination, home to the H.H. Hinder Brewing Company, one of my favorite craft brewers in the state. Uh, four-wheel drive, if you've ever driven four-wheel drive in this time of year, you probably do. That was invented in Clintonville in Wapaka County. Company Seagrave Fire Apparatus is still in the city making four-wheel drive and other custom chassis with walk-in and walk-around rescue vehicles. You can visit the Seagrave uh, Four-Wheel Drive Museum in Clintonville and see over 60 of those vehicles, including America's first successful four-wheel drive vehicle. You love rodeos. Manawa, if I pronounce that right, might be Manawa. Uh, hosts a major Midwest rodeo every July. Wyawiga is famous for cheese. Iola is home to the Iola Car Show and Swap Meet, the largest of its kind in the Midwest. Wolf River flows through it. Towns like Fremont are famous for fishing. And Wapaka County also holds one of my favorite named towns in the state, Embarrass. That is a good one. The cabin is also brought to you by the WCA Group Health Trust, serving local governments and school districts. The WCA Group Health Trust partners closely with members to fulfill their employee health benefit obligations in a fiscally responsible manner. Learn more at WCAGHT.org. All right, let's light it up. I love the light a campfire gives off, but it's nothing compared to the light the stars give off. Oh, which brings us to our guest today. Sam, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you got into astrophysics, because you... Um, I mean, you have a lot of different interests and passions, and we're going to jump into all of it today. Uh, I know that you do some woodworking on the side, too, it sounds like, and photography is a big passion of yours, um, especially, for, you know, doing some photography of the night sky. And um, so I'm excited to hear a little bit about how, what that looks like. But first, give us a little bit of the background. You are a UW-Madison student, and you study astrophysics there, but that hasn't always been necessarily a passion of yours, at least that you knew about. Yeah, I've studied 
or been interested in different sciences off and on for quite a while. Um, had so many different interests, it's been hard to narrow down and find what I wanted to focus on in college. Um, I got into astronomy by a couple of classes at Madison College before transferring to the UW. And that happened about the same time as I discovered the Aurora and became interested mm. in that. And those seem to fit together fairly well. They're kind of adjacent science topics. So I thought astronomy would be a good fit because I could then uh, study the Aurora in graduate school if I wanted to with the astronomy basis, or I could continue with astronomy, um, both between that and my hobby of astrophotography, I was getting quite interested in astronomy. Very cool. And when you say you discovered the aurora, what do you mean by that? <laughs> well, it was more of a gradual awakening than a certain discovery, I should say. Um, when I first moved to Madison, there was a news article about chances that the aurora might be visible. And that turned out mm. to be a flop. Uh, it didn't happen <laughs> the way they had predicted. In Madison. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As so often happens. Uh, but that brought to my attention that it's possible to see the aurora from this area. I had no idea. I thought it'd have to be in Alaska or Scandinavia or something like sure. that. So I started reading about the science behind mm -hmm. them and how to see them and when you can see them, what you need to see them, and gradually becoming more interested. And then whenever it seemed like it would be likely, I would go out and look for it. It took me a while to get there. I uh, had a lot of failed attempts where I didn't see anything, but eventually I got there. So you're waking up in the middle of the night, right? To, are you getting up out of your bed at like 2 a.m., 3 a.m. to go see if it's there? I'm not quite that dedicated. I watch it. I watch the data during the day and in the evening and as soon okay. as it gets dark and I see if I want to stay up late or not. Um, I haven't stayed up past two or three to do it. Um if you want to be sure you're not missing the aurora, the only way to do it is to stay out looking until sunrise because sometimes it's quiet all night and then explodes right in the early morning. But I've never been able to quite get that far myself. Yeah. Well, I have never seen the aurora in Madison. Have you guys? I have not. And it came, I think, in the summertime this year, right? Where you could see it above Mendota. Did you happen to see that one, Sam? There were spectacular displays in April 24th and March 24th. Okay. Um, those were the two that were visible from right in the city even. First of all, you have to depend on a relatively clear evening, which in Wisconsin is not mm, <laughs> always that's, a guarantee. That's the trick sometimes, yeah. especially this time of year. Yeah. And oftentimes if you have a, a level horizon water and not a lot of light, I know a lot of people on the bay side of Door County and on the shore of Lake Superior often have a better shot because it's water to the north. You don't have as many lights on the ground and you have a better chance. Of Plus, it's a little further north. But yeah, for it to be visible here on the 43rd parallel, that's not as common as just a little ways further north. Between the light and being further south, it takes a lot stronger activity to reach us down here. Now, a lot of people don't know what the Aurora Borealis is. And it, it has a lot to do with the Earth's magnetic particles and such, is my understanding. Uh, give people a little background on what that is when they can see those northern lights. The sun is active, produces solar weather. It has these outbursts called solar flares that launch clouds of charged particles out into space that fly out through the solar system. And when they hit the Earth's magnetosphere um, and interact with its magnetic field, and they're channeled and guided in toward the poles where the magnetic north and south poles are, 
And when they come into the atmosphere, they hit gases in the atmosphere, nitrogen, oxygen, mm. those are the main ones. And at high altitudes where the pressure is low enough, they excite the molecules and cause them to glow and emit light, which is what we see as the aurora. Wow. And, yeah, they do kind of get charged towards because there's the southern lights in the southern mm -hmm. hemisphere over Antarctica. They see a lot of a lot of those. I assume. And it's toward the magnetic poles, which is funny because the magnetic pole moves a little bit. It's actually shifting. I just saw a mm. story about that. It's like moving towards Siberia. Really? Even though the magnetic pole is south of the geographic North Pole, it's been kind of centered under Canada and it's kind of shifting towards Siberia now just because of changes mm. in the magnetic stuff under the Earth. Just like there's magnetic particles in the atmosphere. So it's a fascinating study. It's quite complex. Yeah. Yeah. And Sam, you were, we, fortunately for those listening, we had a little bit of time. We had some technical difficulties, but the silver lining in that was that we got to chat a little bit with Sam um, before the podcast. And um, you had mentioned that you thought maybe you would go on to study you know, the Aurora specifically later on and maybe do research on the Aurora. That's something I'd love to do. And yeah. what would that look like for you? I haven't looked into it a ton. Um, it's a very niche subject. There's not a lot of places that do a lot of that kind of research. Uh, the biggest one is University of Alaska Fairbanks. Sure. Um, well, makes sense. There, it's <laughs> convenient. They see the Aurora. I think every clear night is what they say. Wow. Um, there's a lot of science and research done on the Aurora up there. Incredible. So I didn't know that Madison was an area that you could see the aurora. I had no idea um, until actually I started, you know, seeing your Facebook page and started seeing all these photos that you had captured. Um, so this was news to me as well. And I think, Jake, you had a question regarding, you know, how long it really took Sam, to see these lights. Yeah. So, Sam, I read your article, the Spectrum News piece, when they talked to you back in November, I believe. And they said it took you a year and a half before you finally saw the lights. And I, I, I'd I, like to think I'm a persistent person, but I don't know if I could last a whole year and a half <laughs> sticking it out. And I was wondering if you could kind of walk us through that moment when after all that time you finally did see it and, you know, how that felt to you and if you were able to kind of capture it with your camera as well in that time. It's it was a bit of a gradual process. The first time I captured it, it was only visible to the camera and not to the naked eye. Mm. Oh. Um mm. and that was when it's dim, the camera can see it in long exposures of 20 or 30 seconds usually is how about how long I go. So when you do that, are you setting up the camera in long exposure and kind of crossing your fingers if it's not visible to the naked eye? Yeah, you just set it up, point it north, take a test shot and see if there's anything there. Wow. How did you learn that? Um, it was a slow process. Uh, I used the website and app Space Weather Live, okay. and there's a community forum associated with that. There's a lot of knowledgeable people on there that helped uh, me learn the science behind the Aurora and some of the data. There's a lot of real-time data monitoring from satellites in orbit mm. and um, out at the Sun-Earth Lagrangian point between us and the sun that monitor that activity coming from the sun. And that's the way we can tell how active the aurora might be, when would be a good chance to see it. Oh. So if you watch that and it looks like it's getting likely, then that's when you know to go out and take a test shot, see if you see something. Okay, that's so neat. And can you tell me, so that was the first time you captured on a camera. What was the first time you saw it with your own eyes and how did that feel? 
I'm afraid to say that was not in Wisconsin or Madison. Oh. <laughs> it was up uh, by Marquette on the Upper Peninsula, Ooh. looking north over Lake Superior. Wow, that must have been uh, gorgeous. Because that's an excellent place to see it. Makes sense. Uh, I have since seen it at a similar level from Madison, though, later on. Okay. Um, but that was an incredible experience. I sort of knew what it would be like because I'd heard so many people describe it, seen so many pictures. But still, it was it was still amazing. Um for me to see the first time. Did it match the vibrance of just anything you've ever seen with your own eyes before or is its own kind of experience? The colors actually are often not visible to the naked eye. Oh. Uh, they show up really well to the camera, but to the naked eye it can appear white. Um, huh. From far far north places, Churchill, Fairbanks, um, Norway, you can see the colors much easier where the lights are brighter and closer. Uh, but I actually have not seen the colors from either from uh, Marquette or from Madison. But you can still mm. see all the detail. You see the bands and the pillars. You can see it move in real time, which is another thing that doesn't come through on the hmm. photographs as well, but is very neat to see. Did you guys know that? That you don't no. really see the colors as much? No, I didn't. But your camera, you said, is capturing the color. Mm-hmm. The rod cells in our eyes that work well in low light can't see colors, unlike the cone cells that work sure. in bright light but can see colors. So the aurora Makes is sense. very dim, even when it's active, especially down here. It would have to be a once-in-a-decade event probably to be strong yeah. enough to see the colors down here. So it's dim enough that the rod cells don't pick up the colors. So that's an interesting thing. The camera is a different eye than what we have. Mm-hmm. It so works it, differently. It can, mm-hmm. Almost like some animals and insects see things differently than we do. Mm-hmm. So does the camera. Well, and it's possible that we're, we have seen the northern lights then in Madison, but don't know. Oh, it's entirely that's what it's it is. probable. It's <laughs> because possible, they're yeah. white, uh, they could be mistaken for a haze or cloud of some sure. kind yeah. as well. If you don't know what they look like, um, you could look like past them. And sometimes wow. if you're looking with the naked eye towards what you think is the Milky Way, even though we're kind of in the Milky Way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it looks kind of milky and white in a way. Yeah, Maybe some of similar. that can be mistaken with the aurora too. Yeah, I think I've seen... Uh, that trip people up as well. There's a yeah. lot of things in the night sky that are out there and are dim and people might not be real familiar with the night sky until they go out to look for aurora. Mm-hmm. So there's a number of things. Light pollution on clouds is a big one um, that's tricky to tell whether it's aurora or not for a lot of beginners. Yeah. Well, it's always so fascinating when you live in a big city because I grew up primarily in cities or real close to them. Then you go out to the countryside on a clear night and what you see suddenly is astounding. Mm-hmm. Huh. So, oh, sorry. I just wanted to ask Sam. So you kind of told us that, you know, you want to avoid overcast weather, certain conditions like that. I kind of want to talk about what you want to bring when you're taking mm-hmm. photos of this kind of stuff. Could you kind of give us a look into your process or the equipments, the kind of specs mm-hmm. you do? So our listeners who might be interested in getting started nowhere to kind of get their feet wet. Certainly, because a camera can see the aurora when it's much dimmer than uh, the eye can see it and it sees the colors. Uh, The camera is the best way to tell if it's there and uh, if you want to take photos of it. So uh, even modern smartphones are getting really, really good uh, at night sky photography. They can take pretty impressive photos of the aurora, not quite at the level of a... um, DSLR or mirrorless camera mm. with a fast lens, but they can show aurora that your eye can't see. Mm. So, um, and you need a tripod or someplace to set that so that you can do the long exposures as long as your camera can do um, up to about 30 seconds, I think is the limit for a lot of smartphones. 
And that's naturally built into the camera. You don't need a third party app camera for that. It depends on the phone. Okay. Um, several of them have pretty good camera, uh, night sky camera functionality built in. Wow. Uh, the tripod is an important part to hold it steady during that mm-hmm. shot. Um, and that's, if you just really want to see if the Aurora is out, that's all you need. Um, oh. I use a DSLR and a fast lens. Um, usually I use one with an aperture of f2.8, sometimes f1.8, to try and let in as much light as possible to bring out this dim Aurora. Okay. And if you have a faster lens, you can use a shorter exposure, which helps capture the movement of the aurora. If you take a long exposure, you can gather more light. But if the aurora moves around during that time period, it gets blurred out. So a shorter exposure can capture more detail. Okay. And have you ever done film? I know it's a totally different ball game when you kind of enter into the film world versus photography. But have you ever tried capturing film of the, the night sky? I have not, no. Okay. I know some of our coworkers right now are just writing down notes, listening to this. Yeah, like, okay, okay, right? this is the right F stop. I know what I have to do now because a lot of them were telling us they're really curious. And I think the fact that it was visible here in Madison back in 2023 really sparked a lot of people to go get involved. And it's so cool. And have you noticed in your studies, did that bring any kind of juice or excitement to the academic community? Um, I have not been closely involved enough with the Aurora science community to tell. Um, but this solar cycle in general, uh, solar s- the sun goes through an 11-year period of activity called a solar cycle. It goes from low activity where it's quiet and consequently the aurora is often quiet hmm. to a maximum where mm. there's lots of solar activity and lots of aurora and back down again. We passed the last minimum in 2019 or 2020. I think, and we're approaching a maximum. We won't know quite when it is until we can see it in the rearview mirror. Mm-hmm. But probably this year is what most of the experts seem to say. Yeah, I'd read 2024 is supposed to be quite a celestial year for mm-hmm. all kinds of eyes to the sky. So this is an exciting time for the Aurora. There's been some new, um, some new predictions for the solar cycle that have come out, uh, new ways of forecasting its strength. So it's an interesting time for Aurora science. Yeah, and on that note too, Regarding the forecast for the Aurora, you mentioned an app that people can use, but what does, you know, what goes into the forecast and what makes it more likely or what kind of areas are more prone in, you know, throughout Wisconsin, what areas are more prone to having the Aurora and why there? Um, And then how can people forecast that? The Aurora is active on a global level. Um, So if it's strong somewhere, it's strong Anywhere. There's not specific parts mm. in Wisconsin that are better. Um, you need it to be nighttime. The aurora is strongest <laughs> on the nighttime side of the earth. And of course, you can't see it when the sun's out because it's simply not bright enough. So it needs to be nighttime for the aurora to move around to the Wisconsin side. It needs to be strong enough, enough aurora activity to come far enough south for us to see it down here. Um, but aurora forecasting is quite complex. It's not it's like weather forecasting was in the 50s or 60s i'm told <laughs> it's a very inexact science there's a lot of research being done and we're getting better at it but have a long ways to go yet so it's it's a guessing game um but yeah where okay. else in wisconsin have you have you seen it outside of madison um i have not actually seen it from right in the city um on those two nights this spring that it was strong enough, I was outside, just just outside of Dane County um, to go where the sky's darker and I can get better pictures of it. So I've seen it from Columbia County, just north of Dane County. I've seen it from Indian Lake County Park. 
Um, I've looked for it from Brigham County Park, but didn't have any success mm. that night. Um, and I've seen it from Greene County, just southwest of Madison. Mm. Um, Very cool. And do you have a list of places that you want to try and go scouting for it? Yeah, I've got uh, some contenders, both local spots that I think might be good because they're remote and have dark skies both there and to the north. No major towns or cities for a ways north of you. Please do tell. That's what we're all about. uh, When people in Madison ask, um, I tend to recommend Indian Lake County Park Mm. and Brigham County Park. That part of the county is the darkest. Uh, There aren't super major cities or towns north of it. And although the parks close at 10, uh, Dane County Parks has a um, stargazing permit that you can get for like 10 or 15 bucks for a year that lets you stay there all night. Hmm. Um, so that's you can so do that cool. to look for the Aurora and stay as late as you want. That wow, is, that's which great. Which is a great resource. You know, we, we filmed in Door County earlier this year and we were at Newport State Park and they have the first international dark mm-hmm. sky designation in the state. Mm-hmm. So I assume that would be a pretty good spot to go in there and check out. I see a lot of good Aurora photos from Wisconsin, uh, from Door County. Um, the Superior Coast is a little bit better uh, mm, since it's sense. further north and there's less land and light pollution to the north. Um, Apostle Islands is a, mm. is a wonderful area. Um, and then the nearby Upper Peninsula in northern Minnesota as well. Yeah, Marquette, Copper Harbor, you know, the tip of the Keweenaw. <laughs> mm. You're 50 miles from anything. Copper Harbor is probably one of the best in the Midwest. Yeah. Yeah. Lack of light pollution. Um, And we have covered another episode, like you were mentioning, Eric, in the Mm -hmm. very beginning, uh, that talks all about, you know, dark zones and night sky in Wisconsin and and stuff. But I want to just ask this because I know you do, you look at more than just the aurora. Mm -hmm. You look at nebulas and Mm -hmm. a lot of different um, astral phenomena. So can you talk a little bit? Um, outside of the auroras, what else do you look at? Because you capture a lot of really amazing photos. And what's the difference in photography between, you know, equipment wise between the two um, types of photos that you're taking, whether it's astral phenomena or uh, the aurora? Both are night sky photography, uh, but I use completely different equipment for the two different things. Uh, for the aurora, I use a DSLR and a lens on a tripod fairly standard equipment. Uh, For astrophotography, deep space objects, nebulae in the Milky Way and other galaxies outside the Milky Way, I use a telescope uh, with a camera attached to it, and that's Mm. on an equatorial tracking mount, which you align to the Earth's axis, and then it moves very slowly in such a way that it counteracts the motion of the Earth. Um, If you're just on a fixed tripod, you try and take a picture of the stars and expose for uh, 60 uh, 60 seconds, two minutes, five minutes, the stars trail, everything moves and ruins the shot. So you need these equatorial mounts that line up and track the sky such that the stars appear to stay fixed in place and you can oh. expose for as long as you want. Well, the Earth turns enough wow. in a minute to make a difference, right? When mm-hmm. Especially when it, when the object you're pointing the camera at is millions of miles away. So yeah, and boy, how they calculate that is to, to stay still with the sky rather than with the Earth. Yeah, you have to align the axis of rotation of the mount to the Earth's axis. So you do that by pointing it at Polaris in such Mm -hmm. a way, the North Star, and align it. Um, And then it spins one rotation every 24 hours in the opposite direction and cancels it out. And if we've seen those those pictures where like the stars appear to rotate in a circle, that's the one where it's still on the Earth, right? Star trails, yeah. That's what happens if you don't track the stars. Mm. If you just stay fixed and let the stars move. 
then that's what you get. So it's a, it's a very cool effect. I've done that a couple times as well. I like oh, it. Nice. But if you want to photograph an object like a nebula or a galaxy, mm -hmm. then that doesn't work so well because you'll be yeah. constantly losing it and everything gets blurred. So those things are a lot, I mean, however many light years away and some are millions of light years away and mm -hmm. distances we can't even comprehend some of us. <laughs> but yeah. some of the planets are really close. So with some of that equipment, you can get a lot of detail on things that aren't that far away by I comparison. I haven't tried planetary. It's sort of a different flavor of astrophotography. Mm -hmm. uh, the planets are very, very small, actually, compared to a lot of deep sky objects in terms of how large they appear on the sky. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're very bright. They're much brighter than nebulae or galaxies or things like that. So it takes a different kind of equipment to do it. Okay. And there's a, I'm forgetting the term. There's a term for how, how bright something is in the night sky. A number. Uh, magnitude, apparent magnitude. magnitude. Yeah. Apparent magnitude. That's what mm -hmm. I'm thinking of. Yeah. And those things, I mean, sometimes with binoculars, you can see like the rings on Saturn and all that detail, but yeah, for something that's far, far, far away, specialized equipment is necessary. When I do deep space astrophotography, I'm tracking the same object and exposing for three, six, eight, uh, I did think my longest is 24 hours. Wow. Um, just to wow. get enough light on that one target to get a decent image because they're so dim. Whereas with planets, you can see the details through binoculars in mm -hmm. a fraction of a second. So can you calculate? Do you have any idea how far away some of these objects are? Astronomers have pretty good estimates of how far away things are. The farther away they are, the fuzzier the, uh, the definition gets. Um, but most of them are pretty well fixed. The Andromeda galaxy, our nearest neighbor galaxy, is, I think it's 2.5 million light years away. Um, I've captured farther away galaxies. I think, I think one was in the 60 million light years. <laughs> and then things... Wow. That means the light you're looking at uh, left that area 60 million years ago. Mm -hmm. You were looking into the past mm -hmm. in an epic way. What you see is how it was millions of years ago. Uh -huh. We wow. have no idea what it's like right now, and we will Reaching never know. You, yeah. And if, like, if a million or two million years ago, somebody on a distant planet focused on Earth, they and they could see things on it, they might see dinosaurs mm -hmm. and think that's what's there. Well, now. I've never thought about it that way. Oh, wow, we're getting, that's we're getting crazy. existential. <laughs> we're getting a little existential. That it really shows wild. how unique the human perspective can be. And mm -hmm. Sam, I think <clears throat> in the past couple of minutes, you've clearly proven to us and our listeners that you outclass us in STEM and all knowledge <laughs> there. And you've also proven that you may even outclass us in photography and camera work. You're giving us a run for our money for think? sure. Uh, uh, yeah. So that kind of leads me to my question. I mean, you still have a couple of years left at the UW-Madison. Go Badgers. I'm an alumni, alumni myself. So. Oh, mm -hmm. oh, Eric. Okay. All we're saving that conversation for a different episode. But <laughs> my question for you do you see a future where you lean more into a career of photography, one of research? What does that path look like for you? Are you trying to find a nice middle space between the two? I'm still figuring that out. Um, I wouldn't mind doing research on the aurora or astronomy um, indefinitely or professionally. Um, being a, a research professor has some interest for me. Okay. Um, but I'd also, I also really love public outreach with the Aurora, helping people see the Aurora, especially mm -hmm. people who haven't seen it before. Um, so maybe as a side gig, I could do classes or um, who knows, maybe even Aurora tours. I haven't been on one of those, uh, oh. but I would love to. Those sound yeah, cool. Absolutely. We Have you heard of Driftless Stargazing? I have, yeah. That's the um, guy from that came in. He was the last mm -hmm. person that we had in that episode. Oh, and 
um, a lot of outreach through that program, too. Mm-hmm. And it's it was really, really great to be able to work with him on a shoot and then also to have him come into the podcast. And it reminds me, you know, he's just most of what he was doing with people was looking through binoculars. I don't mm-hmm. know if he goes beyond that, but um, a little bit different than obviously, you know, looking through the the um, telescope and then taking photos. So astrophotography is pretty incredible. It's amazing to see your photos. And what um, for people listening who are interested in kind of learning more about this or, you know, getting outside and doing this themselves, what apps would you recommend to them? Uh, my favorite is space called Space Weather Live. There's a lot of Aurora apps out there. A lot of them will give you a prediction for how likely it is that you'll see the Aurora at any time. And those are not we're not really good to rely on. <laughs> Aurora is so uncertain that you kind of have to make a lot of oversimplifications to mm-hmm. get something like that. And I found that can be pretty misleading for a lot of people. Mm. Space Weather Live is a little bit harder to get into. It can be a little bit intimidating for some people. There's a lot of graphs on there with different kinds of scientific data that can be hard to interpret. Um, but there are good resources to help learn what that means. And my favorite is Facebook groups. Um, there's a number of Facebook groups in uh, Wisconsin dedicated to helping people see the aurora and so there you can see pictures people post when the aurora is active they'll post them quickly and then you know for sure that it's out because there people you go. are seeing it Yeah, and there are people on there that will post forecasts uh, for the next couple of days usually is about as far out as we can predict the aurora with any kind of reliability is about three days um, so then that'll give you heads up for when you know you might want to go out and look for it fantastic well I think that everybody listening, and I don't know if you guys have, I, I think you guys have gone onto Sam's Facebook page and checked out his photos, but if you haven't, mm-hmm. get out there. Um, all of you listening, definitely check out Sam's Facebook page. Sam, where can they find that information and in your photos? Uh, my Facebook page is Samuel Warfel Photography. Um, and then I would also recommend, if you're interested in the Aurora, I would recommend joining Northern Lights of Wisconsin mm. Facebook group. Um, I'm a moderator in there and post photos and sometimes predictions when the Aurora is active. So that's a good place to look for my photos or get tips on when to see the Aurora. Awesome. And uh, I just do want to do a little plug, too, because you do woodworking. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know, Jake, you had a question about this, I think, or you had mentioned woodworking. But um, people can also see some of your the the objects that you've carved or, you know, uh, created woodworking wise on your website too, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is your website, is that tied into your Facebook page or is there a different link for that? It's not. Uh, probably the best way to find that is to uh, look up Booted Woodcrafts on Instagram. Um, awesome. And has that influenced your photography at all or? Sort of, sort of a separate thing, I would say. Yeah. Um, one of my number of hobbies yeah incredible that you have that much i don't know where you find the time seriously and i was curious because when i heard woodworking woodworking sorry i was like oh are you making like a gimbal out of wood i mean these are some crazy (laughs) mechanics i'd really love to hear about i have made a a couple things for photography uh out of wood sometimes that raises some people's eyebrows are are you sure that's a a good way to do that you're like no it's a tripod or something right i mean help steady it and put it in place i haven't done that but that's not actually a bad idea what have you made out of wood for photography um i made a way to hold a camera and lens on a mount in such a way when i was uh just getting into astrophotography to make it easier to balance it um and some just little dovetail plates accessories nothing nothing major very cool 
Okay. Well, you are have a lot of impressive hobbies and clearly you know your stuff. So I'm excited to continue to check out all the things you have on your website and uh, see where you are in about 10 years from now. Perhaps there will be better predictions for where we can find the Aurora. I hope so. <laughs> Hopefully Alaska for our friend's sake. Hopefully yeah, we right? find you there. there we yeah, we'll come visit you in Fairbanks. <laughs> I would love that. In July. So. <laughs> not, not in January. Definitely. But, you know, Sam, I just want to ask you one more question that you could leave our listeners with. You know, what what has this kind of passion of the Aurora done to change your life? And why should people really go out and see it? It it can give you a new new perspective on life or the world to see something like the Aurora um, that's so so beautiful and far away. It comes from processes that we can hardly comprehend on the sun millions of miles away. Um, if the activity comes to the earth at speeds of 500 to 1,000 kilometers a second, these things are mind-boggling. <laughs> and yet they create this beautiful aurora that we can go out and see. And that our atmosphere protects us from, fortunately. I mean, yeah. that's, that's part mm -hmm. of the whole thing, too. It takes yeah. out the harmful effects and just <laughs> leaves us beautiful aurora. It's awesome. That's good. I don't think it would be worth it if we had to deal with the harmful effects. I think I'd probably sit at home and just look at your photography on Facebook and Instagram. So it could become be Bubble any. Boy. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Sam, for joining us today. This was great. My pleasure. Thank we you. We appreciate it a lot. Of course. Take care. Very cool info. Yeah, he was incredible. Holy cow. He didn't just so that everybody listening knows Sam did not have a computer in front of him. He did not have notes. He had nothing in front of him except us, which we did not help him on any of those facts. <laughs> no, and he still has like two years left at UW-Madison. He's only I getting really smarter. Can you believe that? Yeah. Wondering where he got all this information and the time to accumulate it. In five years, he'll probably be the guy who gives us the Aurora forecasts. That's what I was wondering. You know, and right? for all we know, it'll be all of all of space nebulae and everything because who knows, at that point, maybe we'll have inner intergalactic communication with other galaxies and we'll have to not just give the weather forecast but <laughs> space forecast people will be living on mars well you can already get the mars weather that's online yeah. from, <laughs> from, check from it every the, day from discovery on there yeah. imagine and that's like on your cable network sometimes <laughs> it's comes warmer in there, there than here so <laughs> are you uh, are you gonna take a little trip eric if you guys were offered that trip would you go to mars yeah i get impatient on the drive to madison <laughs> Just saying, what about to the moon? Would you go to the moon? Sure. You would? Yeah. I bet I bet they could do that in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. I bet so. It surprised me. Spring break, we're all going to the moon. <laughs> we, BMW their beaches, uh, hey, their beaches leave a little <laughs> to be desired, but sure. Yeah, I can imagine. All right. And be sure to tune in next week on the podcast as we will welcome Ron Faola. We've had him on before. We're going to have him on again. Our Wisconsin Supper Club connoisseur back into the cabin. He has made a documentary and just released his fourth book titled Wisconsin Supper Club Second Edition. I do want to say he's made a documentary a while ago. The way that I said that made it sound recent. That was the first thing that he did. But he did just release his fourth book. Again, that's Wisconsin Supper Club Second Edition. There is a lot of there are a lot of supper clubs to cover all throughout the state, which is why next week episode will be part three on Wisconsin's <laughs> Best Bites Supper Club Edition. So don't forget to join us in the cabin for it. It is going to be a great time. 
Today's episode of The Cabin was hosted and produced by Eric Paulson, Annalise Beckman, and me, Jake Rome, with guest Sam Warfel. Audio engineering and video teasers by Nick Cartarella and myself with social media by Adeline Savinak. The Cabin is a production brought to you by Discover MediaWorks. To learn more, head to discovermediaworks.com and don't forget to leave a review. The Cabin is brought to you by Ho-Chunk Gaming. Ho-Chunk Gaming, Wisconsin, where you can experience the difference. Come get away and experience gaming in a whole new way. Ho-Chunk Gaming offers a range of adventure and entertainment by offering gaming excitement and relaxing accommodations all in one place. Whether it's discovering your favorite slot machine, doubling down on their tables, or rolling your luck with a throw of the dice, this will be the getaway you've been searching for. While you're there, sign up to become a free member of their awards club to receive our special, their special members-only discounts, promotions, and so much more. Ho-Chunk Gaming, where the grown-ups play big. Your grown-up getaway, locations in Madison, Wisconsin Dells, Black River Falls, Nakusa, Toma, and Wittenberg. And Eric, you must be... 21 to Gamble. The Cabin is brought to you by Best Western Hotels, where they have 10 locations in just south-central Wisconsin alone. That includes great towns like Watertown, where you can check out Johnson Creek Premium Outlets nearby, great restaurants including the Elias Inn Supper Club, and great historical experiences like the Octagon House and the home of the very first kindergarten ever in the country. Nearby in Jefferson, you've got access to Fireside Dinner Theater, Wadle's Hamburger Stand, and so many great places, including Jefferson County Fair Park for events. There's four locations in Madison to access everything across campus, across the city, the capital, the dining, and so much more. Dodgeville has the best Western Dodgeville Inn and Suites. Tyrol Basin calls you nearby. So does Frank Lloyd Wright's Taliesin Estate and House on the Rock. In Portage, you have the Best Western Resort Hotel and Conference Center. They've got indoor pool, whirlpool, and meeting space. They're right by the Dells, Cascade Mountain, Devil's Lake, and more. And there's a lot of great history in Portage to explore. The Ambassador Inn and Suites is right in the Dells. You can check out their pools and access to all of the water parks nearby. The great restaurants, the H.H. Bennett Studio, and so much more. Best Western has 40 hotels across the state of Wisconsin and a great rewards program. Find out more at bestwestern.com.